You're listening to TIP. We have analyzed some 128,000 as of today. Imagine analyzing 180,000 properties. It's just insane. In this week's episode, I talk with Gary Devenois about why technology has taken so long to make it into the real estate industry, what new innovations are coming to the real estate world, what AI and machine learning are, what short-term rentals are and how they're being changed by technology, and much, much more. Gary Devenois is the CEO of realpha.com. Realpha is a digital marketplace that enables its members to simplify wealth creation through investments in short-term rental properties while delivering exceptional guest experiences. Realpha sources and scores properties from the wholesale market using a proprietary AI-driven algorithm called Realpha Brain. It then predicts the viability of each property for the short-term rental market as well as the projected long-term value. The Realpha business plan allows investors to buy equity in specific properties, providing meaningful wealth generation opportunities through short-term passive income via Airbnb as well as equity-driven capital appreciation. Geary also served as the president and CEO of Amiri 100 Inc. since its inception in November 2013. He scaled Amiri from 0 to 50 million dollars in revenue and completed the IPO on Nasdaq in under 4 years. He was awarded the E&Y Entrepreneur of the Year award in 2017. He has also authored a book titled Nothing to Nasdaq. Geary also holds an MS in Technology Management from Columbia University and has attended executive education programs at MIT and Harvard Law School. For the few years that I've been in the real estate industry as a real estate investor, I've been pretty intrigued by the fact that technology really hasn't changed the real estate world that much. It has started to slightly over the last 5 years or so, but other than that, there really hasn't been much innovation. So I enjoyed hearing from a technologist about what is changing now and what might be coming in the future. I hope you guys also enjoy this week's episode with Gary Devenois. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host Robert Leonard interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host Robert Leonard, and with me today I have Gary. Gary, welcome to the show. Hi Robert, how are you today? Doing well. How about yourself? Doing great. Despite being such a popular and big industry, technology has taken a long time to really enter the real estate industry. I'd say it started over the last 5 years or so, but it's certainly been slower than many other industries. Why do you think the adoption of innovative technologies in real estate has been slower than other industries? Very interesting question. What has happened over the years is real estate is not at the cutting edge of technologies everything you know like moves much slower primarily you know because of the regulations and you know the regulations obviously move slower than the technology itself uh, and given the complexity of the real estate industry every state has its own regulations so you know it adds to the complexity there is no national guideline for anything right you will see that you know real estate transactions still happening on wet signatures and you know wiring money or you know like cashier's check and things like that so from literally identification of property till closing and managing the property etc every step of the way 
technology is like maybe 15 years behind or you know sometimes even 20 years behind one of the funny things i keep hearing from my colleagues in this industry now even though i come from tech industry right for us you know like if somebody says tape that's like mainframe days of you know 1980s and 90s right even today in the real estate industry the standard term is data tape what is data tape it starts there right you know it starts with the recording of the transaction to everything so you know everything is like 15 20 years behind as a technologist and a business guy you must see kind of just the lack of technology in this industry as a huge opportunity absolutely literally every area that i look at is at least 10 years behind so you know like everything you know we can you know jump to today and then leverage tomorrow's technology so i see massive opportunities in every step of the way what brought it on your radar how did you realize that there was a disconnection between technology that's available in the real estate industry and the real estate industry and what are you doing to kind of close that gap my entry into real estate part in the us was a slightly accidental one i had you know taken one company to nasdaq and after that you know i was trying to figure out what next is my big opportunity and one of my friend you know called me saying that she was trying to buy a airbnb property that was some $400,000 and she had to put $100,000 as the down payment because you know banks expect 25% down if it is a short term rental and she said you know like hey you know like i don't have 100k can you solve this problem and that is the origin of i getting involved in this space and you know like we created realfa around it how do you you know analyze the property how do you buy the property how do you manage the property that entire life cycle of property management right from property identification to you know the end goal i see that you know like there are technology gaps that we can bridge that's what you know we are working on in realfa ai and machine learning i would kind of classify those as buzzwords so explain to us what exactly those mean for somebody who's not in technology explain to us simply what ai and machine learning are and then also explain to us how those work in the context of real estate investing so you know like ai and machine learning you know over the last maybe 10 years have really taken off even though you know like almost 30 years back you know everybody thought ai will take over and things like that right so you know it has come a long way because of the computing power you know that has improved what truly you know at a very layman terms ai is how do you you know analyze large quantities of data right so you know like how do you create intelligence out of it and then machine learning is how do you train the machine in such a way that you know it can do much better see you and i humans we have human constraints for example you know we can't work 24/7 we can't analyze large volumes of data we get fatigued and stuff like that a machine doesn't have to right so if you train the machine well if you give it the right models it can you know move at like 100x 1000x faster for example you and i if we have to analyze at an individual level maybe one property an hour two properties an hour we can analyze but can we analyze 10000 properties or 50000 properties 100000 properties there is no way ai and ml will help in those kind of analysis and that is just the beginning of it right there are two kinds of data structured data and non structured data probably structured data is fairly easier to analyze but the moment you throw in unstructured data for example we still believe that ai hasn't really reached its peak how do you analyze a neighborhood see you know like if you want to buy a house what do you do 
you, you know, take a look at the pictures, etc., etc. And the next thing that you do is drive around the neighborhood to see whether, you know, that matches your expectation. From the exterior, how does it look like from a human eye? These things, you know, are still in the early stages of the technology. Machine learning is being trained to analyze the right kind of property, pictures, you know, like is the kitchen really nice or not? A human eye can analyze it much better than a computer. But the more we train the computer, it gets better and better. And eventually, you know, it will do a much better job than the humans themselves. And it has happened in every other field, right? For example, chess. It's been already about 10, 15 years that, you know, chess defeated, I mean, computer defeated a human. And now, you know, like Go, you know, Alpha, you know Google built that Alpha Go that defeated even in Go. Go is supposed to be the most complex game, right? So like the technology is, you know, like making significant advances. And then, you know, we can take all those into, you know, this world's largest business opportunity, right? I mean, I read somewhere that the global real estate value is $370 trillion or something like that. That much of, you know, asset class, how do you analyze? Obviously, you know, AI and ML will be the way to go forward. Do you consider a lot of the real estate data to be unstructured? I know when I try to look up data, not only is there no laws, is there no common laws across states for the most part? Every state has their own laws. They have their own regulations, their own forms. And it's the same with data. If you try to find data on a city or a neighborhood or a county, the way you do it for one city, neighborhood, county in one state is different than you do it for another. And so for me, it can make it super hard as a human even to analyze the data. So are you running into that issue with AI? And is that considered unstructured data? Actually, the question has two parts to it, right? How unconnected these pieces of data, even though you know, everybody says MLS, right? But you know, MLS is not one MLS in this country. There are 560, I think, odd you know, MLS databases. Every state has multiple MLSs. The larger the city, there are multiple MLSs and so on. Imagine you know, 500 odd, you know, 560 odd MLSs around the country. They're not connected to each other. They don't talk to each other and so on. That's one part of the problem. Second part, as you were saying, we have federal laws, state laws, county laws, city laws, and even in given city, between zip code to zip code, half the zip code will be zoning perspective, it is commercial, some are you know, mixed in. So, you know, like, and unfortunately, none of this data is centralized, easy to access. And every little county has its own form, its own way of doing things. And majority of them are non-structured or, you know, like there is no standardization of forms that you need to fill. Some are, you know, like bilingual. I mean, whatever complexity you can think is there in the real estate field, in any field, you know, probably the only other industry which is as complex as this is healthcare. If you can even find it. If you can even find yeah, that data. For me, part, right? Yeah. Like I can't find it. Well, you mentioned zoning. I was actually looking for some zoning information the other day for a property that I was looking at buying. Not only was it hard to find, but I was eventually able to find it. It took me forever. And then once I found it, I could barely read it. I think they scanned in like an old document that they wrote in with on like paper and it was just so hard to read. And I'm like, there's just has to be a better way for this. For Realpha, you know, like we trained our algorithms and built our AI, et cetera. We have analyzed some 128,000 as of today. Imagine analyzing 180,000 properties. It's just insane. That AI that you've formulated, I know it's proprietary, so don't give us your special formula, but just give us an idea what metrics or characteristics of properties and neighborhoods and cities that you're looking at when you do this analysis and where is it getting its data? 
So, you know, like we have built our AI, you know, from variety of factors, right? You know, we use 25 and another three, 28 elements to decide whether we should buy a property or not. And that starts there, right? The things like, you know, like how is the neighborhood? Is it, you know, close to a good school district? How far is it from attractions and so on and so forth? For us, our criteria is, is, it, is the property Airbnb viable? That's the market that we are in, right? And we collect data from multiple sources, multiple ways we collect it. We leverage machine learning to train every time when we analyze. And most of the times we reject a property. When we reject a property, we help our machine learning to learn that, you know, why we reject it. So next time, you know, like if a similar kind of property comes, it rejects automatically. Right now, you know, we have already, you know, come down to, you know, like maybe almost on a lighter note, like an Ivy League elimination process, right? So, you know, 6% is the Harvard, you know, acceptance rate. How do you bring that? So it's like a large funnel and comes down and then, you know, we pick only certain properties. And then, you know, we build another app called Human. In our case, what we have done is our AI doesn't help you to make the decision. It helps you to eliminate the properties that you don't want to buy. Then, you know, we built an app called Human Intelligence as a add-on to the artificial intelligence. Because we still believe that, you know, human intelligence is very critical in making the right decision because our, nobody can claim that AI has figured it out. If somebody is telling you that, they are not a techie. Non-techies can tell stuff, but I'm a techie. If I tell something, I like to talk to, you know, my techie friends. They laugh at me if I say that, you know, AI has figured it out. AI can help you to recommend. AI can help you to reduce the, you know, human analysis. But eventually you need the human analysis. So where is that human in the loop right now? So, you know, like say there are a hundred properties, right? We analyze 90 of them and then eliminate it. And then rest of the 10 goes through the, you know, like next level of, you know, one more filtering that we do. And then, you know, like we have built an app wherein gig economy workers from around the world can look at some of the images and stuff like that, where AI cannot easily rank those images. And that is where the human picture comes in. And then we take both the scores AI-generated score as well as the human score, and we create a hybrid and then that becomes our score. And then final decision, it'll be like maybe three or four or five of them is what humans will analyze. Is the AI and models flexible to change as new things change? So let's just say prior to COVID, more people like to live in a city than like to as soon as COVID hit, right? So you might have different metrics saying that a city is a great population, especially with Airbnb. I know that like drivable destinations for Airbnb did really well when COVID hit, but a lot of destinations that you have to fly to didn't necessarily do as well during when COVID first hit. So there's some of these things that could change and maybe it's not a global pandemic. Maybe it's just a trend that comes up and people want to live in the suburbs or they want to go back to the city or whatever the case is, they want to live in the mountains. Can the AI be flexible to know what's important at the time as it's changing? Yeah. See, you know, like machine learning is pretty much like training a child to talk, right? If you tell, you know, train the child to, you know, use a certain kind of words and then, you know, like the child learns and picks it up, right? Same way, if we give, you know, our machine learning algorithms, the right kind of training models, it can pick up and then, you know, automatically, you know, the next time a similar kind of situation or slightly different situation comes, it is, again, you know, every day AI and ML is, you know, developing, newer models are coming, newer methods are coming. The more we, you know, feed the data, the right quality of data and so on and so forth, the AI will be able to detect the kind of changes 
And obviously, there has to be some human input into that, changing the direction a little bit. But eventually, it will become smart enough that, you know, it is almost like self-driving cars kind of situation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. There was a small real estate company called Zillow recently that very publicly had a big failure leveraging some sort of AI or machine learning technology to do their iBuyer program. If a company such as Zillow isn't able to do it, and I know they're doing a different model, right? They're doing iBuying, they're doing flipping, and you guys are on Airbnb space. But what makes you confident that you and your team can pull it off with AI and machine learning when a company like Zillow wasn't able to? Again, Zillow has done an amazing job. So, you know, like I don't want to criticize or anything like that. You know, I'm very respectful of what they've achieved and, you know, how they have built a great company. 
the challenges of ibuyer were not just technology there were global headwinds from a supply chain and logistics and human labor issues and labor market is super hot etc etc there were multiple issues that went in but one specific thing that you know we had anticipated one year in advance was don't make that buy decision based on the algorithm use it to reduce the number of decisions that you are going to make and then we had already anticipated that you know human intelligence is necessary and we built this human app hopefully you know that is the differentiator that you know as we evolve to the next day again you know there are lots of intricacies it's not a oh you know like one thing went right or wrong kind of thing right you know it's a combination of things that help make a better decision and you know like ai can be a decision support system rather than a decision system in the stock market there has been flash crashes like black monday and that was similar to like ai or machine learning some sort of algorithmic trading failed and caused a massive crash i know you've mentioned that there is human intelligence involved as well and it sounds like it's just filtering it down for humans to make basically have a better pool of properties to analyze but do you think there's a possibility where something like a flash crash could happen in the real estate industry from ai and machine learning i doubt because you know like see if you look at all these i buyer programs and you know like all the large buyers that are buying properties if you look at it it is still a small drop in the big ocean kind of right in a us real estate is so big that even the largest player today of single family residences is a company called invitation homes they are still you know like maybe 88000 homes or something like that you know what 14 million transactions happen on a year basis where i mean you know like it's still very small i don't think you know it has reached a stage where but you know if you look at the stock market algorithmic trading where machine learning and ai does the trading that's like 45 50% now and you know it is increasing very rapidly and you know very soon it will all be you know like systems which are driving that is what led to crashes that happened and you know flash crash and you know etc because of the algorithmic nature of financial transactions luckily you know what has happened in that side acc and you know like nasdaq and all the computerized trading etc i come from the financial services trading side so been involved in you know, very deeply about those algorithms so they are like ahead of the technology curve right in some cases But real estate as i told you it's 15 20 years behind just to come to the current maybe you know like say 20% or 30% of the real estate transactions are happening through technology we are years away from that yet you mentioned a little bit ago that you got into the short term rentals which is airbnb vrbo things like that because your friend was looking to buy one she didn't have 25% to put down there are 10% down programs where you can buy vacation homes And I mean there's so many other ways you could buy real estate other than just short-term rental. So why did you choose like what is the overarching thesis or idea on why you chose short-term rentals? See, Airbnb is operational in 220 countries, right? It's a massive, you know, opportunity. Airbnb is already worth 100 billion dollar now. They are growing rapidly and they are consolidating in every market. So we wanted a global opportunity which is growing and you know, and there is secular transformation from hotels to you know staying in homes and covid simply accelerated that whole process that if you are a family let's say if you are a family or friends of six people if you want to go and stay in a hotel you'll have to book at least three rooms right the cost of the three rooms versus you know one house with three bedrooms 
I mean, you know, simple math tells you that, you know, Airbnb is going to be cheaper and better because it has a kitchen. You can, you know, make something and eat and etc, etc. Especially if you have kids and so on, you know, like everything changes. What we are seeing is this trend is not limited to US across the world. So we believe that that opportunity will give us mega opportunity to grow with that rising tide. That's why we picked, you know, short-term rentals. Are you focused specifically on short-term rentals or Airbnb? Do you have platform risk from Airbnb? See, no, like right now we are only on Airbnb because we believe that they are dominating the market. They are like about 40 odd percent in market share and, you know, like they are the leader, right? Any technology platform, you will eventually have a tech monopoly, whether you like it or not. Google for social media, Facebook, you know, news, Twitter, and so on and so forth, right? We think, you know, that may be the way here. So, you know, like right now, we are in the learning mode. We are a small company. We have to, you know, figure out one platform first before we go to the other ones. How do you think of potential recessions and the impact that that could have on short-term rentals and then as a second-order effect on your business? I am not sure whether there is going to be a recession, recession, like what we saw in the 2008 or 2000, et cetera. The primary reason is the Fed and, you know, like Fed has done so much of money, you know, into the market in the last 20 months. I saw somewhere in some magazine that G20 countries printed what 40% more money than ever. Imagine, you know, like what will happen, you know, with that, you know, 40% money. That is why inflation is all around, right? On last Friday, the inflation data came in that, you know, in US hit 7.5%, highest in 40 years. Are we at the doorstep of a recession? Maybe, may not be. There is a correction around for sure. You know, we have been on a bull market for a long time. So correction is going to happen. Is it a 5%, 10%? You know, it's very hard to predict. I'm not an economist. I'm a tech guy. But how we are looking at it from short-term rental perspective is if there is a recession, people will become more cautious of spending. At that time, you know, they want to find uh, cheaper ways if you are a family and, you know, going on a vacation or if you are a corporate team, which is going, etc. Those are the, you know, kind of targets that we are going after. And from a property perspective, we are taking a much longer view, you know, see any recession will not sustain for more than two, three years, right? Eventually, it will get corrected and comes back. And we are taking a much longer view of 15, 20-year kind of models in our forecasting. We talked before about how there just doesn't seem to be any normal laws or formality across laws and regulations for real estate across states, counties, cities. So with Airbnb, I found that there's even more laws and regulation. So are you concerned with increasing laws and regulations around short-term rentals and how that might impact your business? Yeah. See, you know, like, again, you know, Airbnb is, you know, one cycle behind things like Uber, right? See, when Uber, you know, started going into cities, every city had, you know, like medallion owners and, you know, like they resisted and taxi companies, they resisted that, you know, like you shouldn't be allowing Airbnb and things like that. But eventually, you know, it got corrected. Right. We believe that the same thing will happen to short-term rental industry. There will be some pushback in some cities. And for example, New York City has you know, a bunch of restrictions. But outside New York City, you know, all the other boroughs, it's okay. New Jersey is okay. Like that, you know, every area, there will be some pockets of resistance. But the rest of the country, you know, it's going to be okay. But the market is so big. Even if we become some 50,000 homes, we are still a small drop in the ocean. I want to talk a bit more about your business model. First, 
how is Realpha an investor in every syndicate that goes through the platform? On your website, you mentioned that you get 51% ownership. Do you get that 51% ownership simply for facilitating the deal or is Realpha putting money towards the required down payment? See, you know, what we have done is we are doing a reggae offering where the investors are investing in the portfolio of all the properties that we are going to buy. Once we buy the property, put it on Airbnb, then we will be offering it to our syndicate members. At that time, the company will you know, be investing 51% in the equity and 49% will come from the syndicate members. So we own 51% and hence we take 51% of the net revenue. We've talked about it quite a bit here on the show, but it's been a while now. And it's also a little bit of a different context here. So break down for us what exactly a syndicate is and how it works with your business model. See, you know, like the thesis that we started was 60% of Americans don't have money for a medical emergency. That's the unfortunate reality of the country, right? So I came to this country with $65. I know how hard it is to figure out how to invest in anything. So first of all, survival itself is difficult. How do you allow people who don't have access to invest in an asset class like short-term rentals? That is where we started our journey. And what we have done is with that syndicate member model. So, you know, like in every property, there will be four syndicate members for that 49%, 12 and a quarter percent. So, you know, we have figured out it can be as low as 2,500. Eventually, our long-term vision is, can we help it to, you know, like, let's say you want to, you know, own a piece of the short-term rental property. Can we help you to come with zero down and then still be able to make? For example, today for a car leasing, right? You can, you know, go and, you know, drive a car out with zero down. Why not for, you know, this thing? When it gets into kind of the nitty gritty or the tactical part of owning real estate, specifically with your Airbnb properties, who's actually doing the property management? Right now, you know, we have partners that we use for, you know, property management because, you know, obviously we are not a property management company per se. What we want to do is enable local companies to help us. Right now we have national partners. But eventually, we want to work with smaller regional firms who can you know, set up such kind of entities that can be put on the market. That's what we have done so far. What if one of your properties has a loss for a month or two or even a period of time? Who covers that? What if additional money is needed for not just losses, but repairs or maintenance? Are the syndicate partners having to come up with the money or is that covered by Realpha? How does that so, you know, like for up to about six month kind of, you know, loss that happens, you know, if by chance something goes wrong, you know, we have a reserve fund, which will take care of that. Then, you know, like if anything goes beyond that, we have two levels of insurance that covers if something goes wrong, you know, water heater breaks or, you know, like some flooding happens because somebody forgot to turn off the water, all those problems will happen. So we can as many situations as possible into our financial model and then build it. But, you know, if everything goes wrong, See, we, when we designed our system from a buying perspective, there are two elements that we consider. If everything goes wrong, Airbnb you know, yields are not okay. At that time, there are two choices for us. One, to put it on long-term rental or sell the property and get out, right? So you know, we have factored such kind of risk mitigation into our buy process so that you know, we don't regret later. One of the major issues with buying real estate with partners which is essentially what you're doing with a syndicate or even investing in equity crowdfunding, which utilizes Reg A as well. At least historically, there is a lack of liquidity. Explain how Realpha's model can actually provide liquidity to its investors. 
So, you know, for the reggae investors who are, you know, investing now, we have time till, I mean, SEC allows you to go up to one year for that capital raise. We are only, you know, three and a half months or something like that into it now. What will happen is once we, you know, close the reggae offering, we can either list on an ATS or on a NASDAQ, etc. I have the experience of taking one company to NASDAQ. I think, you know, I'm little qualified to, you know, do that one more time. Obviously, you know, we can't predict, you know, when we will do that. Man, board will decide when we should list on a, an exchange. And obviously, we have to qualify to be on the NASDAQ. The moment we meet criteria for being listed on NASDAQ, at that time, the management and the board will take a decision to you know, file with the SEC, etc. There is a huge setup process that we will have to do. Alternatively, SEC allows that reggae shares to be you know, traded on an ATS. It's called an ATS, Alternative Trading System. So probably we will put on that if we don't decide on a national exchange. So that is how you know, like the liquidity elements are covered for reggae investors. How does somebody access the ATS markets? Oh, it's a standard process like you know, being any other exchange. Is there, because they can't probably access that through their traditional brokerage, right? You're not going to go into Fidelity and access it. Again, it depends on, you know, ATS to ATS. You know, I haven't really studied, you know, in depth about, you know, each one of them. So, you know, it goes by, you know, like ATS to ATS. There are some which are really easy and intuitive. Some are, you know, like little traditional, but, you know, like it won't be, you know, like, oh, you can take, you know, your Merrill Lynch account and then, you know, start trading kind of. You mentioned that you had some success and experience with taking a company to NASDAQ. And so throughout that successful career that you've had, you've raised money a few different ways. But with ReAlpha, you chose to use Regulation A. First, explain to us in detail what Reg A is, how it came about, and then tell us why you chose this method or strategy to fund your business. Very interesting question. I could have raised money you know, to ReAlpha from some private equity or you know, VC firms, etc. I chose this time to you know, allow non-accredited investors to you know, being able to invest. What happened was in 2015, the US government allowed through the Jobs Act for unaccredited investors to be able to invest in high growth companies. That happened in that year and early last year, March of last year, SEC changed the guideline that a tier two companies, the tier one and tier two, there are two kinds of tiers that you know, a company can raise money. Tier one is they increased it to 25 million and tier two was 75 million. So we are in the tier two phase. When a company files for tier two and gets qualified by the SEC, it can raise up to 75 million from both accredited as well as unaccredited investors. The reason why I chose this time was I saw that, you know, like any big successful VC backed company. An ordinary investor will not have an opportunity to invest in that money and ride that way. It's just limited to, you know, super rich people and super rich VC firms. I thought, you know, like Regulation A gives you an opportunity to democratize this process. Additionally, what we realized was the Regulation A offering investors are also our syndicate members in the future. So, you know, for us, it was a way of building the brand working with those investors and help them, you know, create the new asset class in their portfolio. That is why we chose to use this as a method. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. 
With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. We've talked about it a bit here on the show. So just quickly break down the difference between accredited investors and non-accredited investors. Accredited investors are, you know, like, I think, you know, the latest term is what accredited is. You should have a household net worth of, I think, $2 million. You may have to, you know, check the numbers. And then, you know, like you should have at least $300,000 household income. Then, you know, you are considered as an accredited investor. Otherwise, you are an unaccredited investor. That is the difference. And so through your reg A offering, are you able to raise money from non-accredited investors? Yes. Non-accredited investors are also you know, allowed to invest up to a certain level. It depends on their annual income. So they can invest up to that in the reg A offerings. 
Can you clarify for us the difference between your reggae offering that you're doing and how you can actually invest in properties in Airbnb properties through Realpha? Explain to us and kind of explain the distinction there. With the reggae offering, the investors are investing in the company, common shares of the company. That means you are investing in all the properties. Whereas, you know, we chose the path to use this so that, you know, we can buy a larger portfolio of properties. See, with the 75 million, we have a term sheet for a $200 million kind of debt facility, a combo of that, etc. Eventually, we should be able to buy up to $750 million worth of properties. So, you know, like as we, you know, go probably 100 plus properties, we will be able to allow individuals to, you know, almost like go like a property shopping kind of thing and then pick in properties and then invest at a property level. We are looking at some new technology solutions for that. We are in the early stages of that discovery. Once that happens in the next few months, through our Realpha app, which is managed by a broker dealer, we should be you know, allowing people to you know, invest in individual properties. So at that time, you, know, you are an individual property investor. Right now, you are investing in the all portfolio of Realpha. We talked a bit earlier about recession and laws and regulations increasing. But what other downsides do you see investing in short-term rentals, but also what do you see as potential risks for your business? I mean, you know, macroeconomic issues, if it hits, it hits for everybody, right? It's not just for short-term rental, it hits for every other industry, whether you are a restaurant, whether you are a movie or anything, right? You know, every industry gets hit in a recession. So those risks are, you know, common for everybody. From a real for specific perspective, obviously, you know, like things can, you know, be if we, if our algorithms are wrong or things like that. That's why, you know, like we are trying to put as many checks and balances so that, you know, we don't make the mistakes that, you know, some other companies have done in the past. We are very cognizant of those kind of risks, trying to every day work on mitigating those risks. Obviously, we are a high growth company, fast software driven, et cetera. So we want to make sure that we avoid the mistakes that others are doing as we make progress. We learn from others, right? Outside of just what you're working on with Realpha, how do you see technology continuing to change the real estate industry? The latest trend of buying metaverse and land on decentralized land. Those are the early stages of revolution. Very difficult to say how things will evolve, right? This reminds me in 2000 when the internet revolution took off. You know, like if you remember the late 99, 2000, a lot of stuff happened and a bunch of companies died. But, you know, like an Amazon got created, Google got created, etc. Right. You know, those companies, eBay and, you know, things like that. Those were the companies which rode the wave, went public and then, you know, like sustained and grew and grew. Two of them, you know, like both Amazon and Google were the product of dot-com boom. Today, they are multi-trillion dollar kind of companies, right? So we are in the early stages of the revolution of the Web 3.0. I mean, that is one of the famous, you are hearing everywhere, right? Everybody is talking about crypto and NFTs and Web 3.0, etc. That is, we are at the early stage, right? You know, like companies will figure out new business models, new decentralized ways of doing things. I think real estate is ripe for that because of the number of transactions that are involved and archaic nature of the documents and all the problems that we discussed in the beginning of this conversation, it is ripe for a disruption. Question is, who is going to lead? Which platform is going to lead? Yet to be decided. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you next was, do you see the blockchain and smart contracts kind of replacing 
I mean, we mentioned before, you still have to sign all your closing documents. I don't believe there's any. And if there are, there's very few that allow you to do DocuSign for your closings. So it's still going to a closing or getting your documents sent to you and signing them with a paper. And I mean, I've done a dozen or more real estate transactions that are two inches thick in documents you have to sign. And I just wonder if there has to be a better way. So I'm wondering if the blockchain and maybe smart contracts, part of that Web 3.0 movement are going to be maybe the solution. Absolutely. Blockchain and smart contracts are the way to go from a real estate data and real estate record keeping, right? Unfortunately, states are still, you know, again, this comes under the state domain, right? Every state will be different. What if, you know, like you are in one state, on Friday, we closed one property and we observed that, you know, like one state allowed DocuSign. I was surprised DocuSign itself is considered as a revolution. So the way title industry is literally 10 years behind in technology, and then, you know, like all the quarter inch, or, you know, half inch thick documents and who knows what you are signing. And, you know, like if what if the pages are changed? Things like that. Blockchain and smart contracts will allow transparent, efficient, trusted kind of transactions that happen between buyer and seller. And forget the payments. That's yet another, you know, like massive problem, right? Uh, people, you know, even today want, you know, check to be written wire. Wire is the most inefficient way of doing any money transaction, right? Can it be, you know, electronic crypto kind of transaction? I think it is. Time is coming. See, you know, in technology, what we have seen, right? Initially, it will happen slowly, but eventually it will become fast. We are at that somewhere in that curve, you know, like we're towards the end of that slow transition. I've seen some really interesting blockchain and crypto kind of escrow programs that I think would be really interesting for, for real estate. But yeah, I buy all of my real estate out of state. I live in the Boston area. All my rentals are in Texas. And every time that I do that, they FedEx me overnight this probably inch thick documents that I need to sign. And I sign 150 pages and I send it back to them. And I just think to myself, like, why can't we just do this electronically? We'd save money. It'd be faster. It'd be probably safer, more efficient. And then you also get a check at closing. You go to the title company and you literally get a check. And it's like, why can't we just do some sort of transfer? And I think crypto or blockchain or some sort of web three development is going to solve that problem. You know, like notarization, you know, like you have to, you know, sit in front of a notary, give a physical license, and then, you know, you have to sign on that. Every step can be disrupted. Earlier in the show, we talked about how you're a technologist who is making their way into the real estate industry. And as an entrepreneur myself, I can only imagine that you probably struggle a bit with the shiny object syndrome. We talked about how real estate is so far behind. So as a technologist, you can see all of these different ways or different products or services or ways that you could make money as all these different business models that there are. So how do you personally focus on what's important? So, you know, like what we are looking at is what is a burning problem, right? We are addressing some of the burning problems. And we believe that, you know, like if we are facing the problem and the pain is strong enough, work on it and then solve the technology rather than everything is shiny, everything is interesting, right? Uh, Then, you know, you are like a kid in a candy shop. You want everything, right? You don't want to do that. You know, you want to be, you know, healthy and, you know, like eat the right things. Same way, what we are doing is what are the, you know, like critical pain points in this process that is affecting us? And then talk to, you know, like 20 other, 50 other, 100 other players in the space and see which one need to be addressed. Do you do anything specifically to kind of fight off those other ideas that come in? You've decided one thing works, you want to work on it. 
that's the right idea, but then you still have all these other ideas pinging at you. How do you just kind of shoo those off? Oh, that's a hard one, by the way. As an entrepreneur and a technologist and seeing so many opportunities, very hard, right? So, you know, like what we have done is we have built an independent board of directors, really smart people. I'm lucky to say this, that I have hired really smart people, smarter than me in our team. And they, you know, become the checks and balances for my enthusiasm, you know, hey, let's do this. You know, I say that, but then they'll say, hey, that may be a stupid idea because nobody wants it yet. So that's how, you know, like, and then, you know, having a good board helps me to, you know, like narrow down because they tend to ask a lot of questions. And the more the questions are, you know, you tame down your enthusiasm and then do the right things. I know just that process of being asked questions can be super helpful because you can be really excited about something. People start asking questions, they start diving in, not to change your mind or act like you don't know what you're talking about, but just because they're genuinely curious and you start explaining your answers to them. And then you start thinking to yourself, oh, maybe I don't actually want to do this. As you're explaining things, you're like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe this isn't the right maybe strategy or product or service for us to go to market with. That's worked really well for me. People ask me, well, why do you want to do that? And they'll just dive in a little bit. And when I go to explain that to them, I'm like, oh, maybe I actually don't want to do this. And I kind of go back to what my original idea was. One of the basic aspects of Realpha culture that we have designed and, you know, like harnessed every day is to say that, you know, everybody should hire better than themselves. So the more better people that we hire, the rigor of decision-making comes, right? You know, like there are smart people and, you know, when you have smart people, they'll ask the right kind of questions, which leads to right answer. So it's about, you know, finding that who, then the how part first. That's where, you know, like all the transformation happens. I know one of the best-selling authors, Jim Collins, is really big on that. He has this analogy around buses and he says, just get as the right people on the bus. Don't worry so much about where the bus is going, but get the right people on the bus. And he's very adamant about that same strategy as well. Uh, good to great. Yeah, good to great. Built to last. Built to last. I've read both of his books. Speaking of books, what would you say has been the most influential book in your life? I read a lot of books, at least one a week, kind of. You know, that's been my you know, path for a very long time. The most important book that I have read is a book called Siddhartha. I don't know if you have heard of that. It's a 1970s book, I think. It's a very small book. There are three principles in that. You can think, you can wait, you can fast. So thinking, waiting, as in patience, and fasting, meaning control. Those are the three things which helps you to, you know, taming the monkey mind. You know, like the Buddhist philosophies, you know, mind is a monkey. It can jump from item to item, right? How do you tame that? That's probably one of my best books that I've read so far. Can you spell that title for us? Siddhartha. S-I-D-D-H-A-R-T-H-A. All right. Awesome. I haven't heard of that book, so I'll be sure to put a list. A small book, you know, probably 100 pages or something like that. Some of the smallest books are the best books. And the other one is The Greatest Salesman, right? You know? Yeah, I've heard of that one, but I haven't read it yet. Agmandino, he was a classic writer. Before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I always like to wrap up the show by turning the tables and letting the guest ask me a question. I learned this from a very popular podcaster named Pomp. He does this on his shows, and I really like it as well. So, Gary, what question do you have for me? 
your title of the podcast is investing 101 in real estate right why 101 you know why is it so complex why is it not top 3 or top 10 well we decided to focus on 101 honestly it's mostly because of the size of the audience that we could reach and so if we were to go with commercial or go to something more complex you narrow down your audience significantly and our main business model is growing the shows as big as we can so we need the biggest audience possible that we can and so with real estate 101 you're going to have the most beginner investors and so for me i also felt that when i was getting into real estate there was a specific resource i wanted that i couldn't really find bigger pockets is great but i still wanted something a little bit different and now that i've had some success in real estate now that i've grown the show pretty big i want to help give that back to other people and i want to be that resource that i kind of wish i had when i was at the very beginning stages so i really want to help people get that first deal that they have or first couple deals second third deal or even if they've done a couple deals but they want to maybe buy their first airbnb i want to be that resource that they can go to go back to class go back to 101 and learn that new strategy from the beginning and so i just want to be that resource for people that need it that's great well gary i really appreciate you joining me on the show today i really like your business model i think it's really interesting and i can't wait to continue watching what you guys do for the audience that's interested in checking it out where's the best place to connect with you go to realfa.com that's our website and giridevnur.com is my personal website and you know like linkedin facebook twitter giridevnur so you know you can find giridevnur in any other social media but you know realfa.com is where you will find my profile i will put a link to realfa and giri's most popular social medias in the show notes as well as the books that we mentioned throughout the episode for anybody that's interested in checking that all out giri thanks so much for joining me All right, thank you very much Robert. I appreciate your time. All right guys, that's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.